TSI has a saying, product management defines the promise and customer success helps the customer realize the promise. But how does that work if you are a company with a very complex product portfolio, one that has been amplified through acquisition? How do you keep multiple product teams in sync with multiple CS orgs to create a consistent customer experience? I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. Today, we get some practical insights on how to tackle the handshake between customer success and product teams from Morgan Mann and Vaz Gambier, two dynamic leaders from Cisco Systems. Now, Cisco has wired over 25 companies that provide solutions related to network security. Morgan, you are responsible for merging and managing this complex portfolio. And, and Vaz, you're responsible for creating a, a cohesive, consistent experience for Cisco customers across all these security products. So, so we're going to talk about the journey you two have been on over the past several years to align the product and CS motions related to Cisco's security solutions. So I want to get into it. And Morgan, I'm actually going to start with you. When Cisco acquires a new technology, you have a four-phase approach to integrating the product. Can you describe the first three phases of that process? Yeah, sure. And great to be here. Thanks for thanks for having us. And uh, like you said, Cisco Security over its lifetime has really been a federation of acquisition. And our strategy is to move from that federated approach to a far more cohesive and coherent portfolio approach. The whole has to be greater than the sum of its parts for our strategy to be successful. And what I think about in the context of customer success and customer journeys, uh, when I talk to Voss and team, it's really how do we improve every single day the multi-product customer experience? And frankly, the experience for not just the customer, but for our sellers who are also in a complex multi-layered world, our partners who also are in the same spot, of course, most importantly, our customers. So when we think about it in the context of acquisition, first off, it's, it's a balance. We have a model, absolutely. And that model is going to be adjusted based on the maturity of the asset we're acquiring, where it is in, in the maturity lifecycle. If we're buying a, a company that's 200, 300 million ARR with an established CS practice uh, that, that has the SaaS operating metrics that we're comfortable with, I'll be treating that very differently than something that might be you know, sub 50 million or 10 million ARR that really doesn't have a practice to begin with. Uh, the, the rate in which we integrate will accelerate or slow based on that level of maturity. And you mentioned we have a four-phase process. First of all, there's the acquisition period. And that period goes from due diligence through to that first year, what I would call uh, once we get that product on the Cisco price list, which usually takes anywhere from nine to 12 months uh, post-acquisition. That period really they are doing their own thing like first do no harm right generally speaking that timeline might be compressed again based on the size of the acquisition but about a year do no harm make sure the the team is settled make sure we get them into our processes make sure that the ramp that they're on growth wise isn't disrupted 
Uh, and in the meantime, what's happening in parallel is phase two, which I would call kind of that incubation of the product, which is how do you grow within Cisco as quickly as possible as a standalone product? And that can happen That can happen as early as three to six months. And certainly we have a thesis about it upon acquisition or prior to acquisition, or we wouldn't be buying the asset. Uh, but really, we want to protect the growth of that business in phases one and two. At the same time, and, and I wouldn't think of these phases as serial because they're starting off in fairly quick succession and run over a period of time. That third phase would be making sure we're taking those capabilities and starting to incubate them, not just within that standalone product, but across the rest of our SaaS properties. So specifically within security, we have five SaaS products uh, that, that are truly all, all SaaS. And we have two, two of those really foundational that make a majority of that revenue. It's Umbrella and it's Duo. And they serve different parts of the market, but they, they're very much a SaaS, a common SaaS motion. And in that third phase, what we're doing is making sure that as we look at the customer success practice, are they doing things similarly? Can we make the adoption framework the same? On the sales side, can we make sure that the systems that are supporting you know, the CRM environment, salesforce.com and Marketo and all those things, can we migrate to a common platform there to accelerate multi-product selling more effectively? Uh, so those are the things that are going on in that SaaS incubation realm, knowing that you know, how we sell subscription-based products, how we take them to market, uh, how we support them, how we drive adoption, what have you, is significantly materially different than what we're doing with our on-prem franchises that might have a lot of hardware associated with it, a very different kind of sales cycle and, and what have you. So that, that's the first three phases. It's that acquisition phase. It's the incubation phase of the business in its entirety. And then that third phase is incubating that is an ongoing incubation work, but kind of across our SaaS properties as a whole. So we can actually start getting not just leverage and efficiencies across the teams, but best practices and accelerated growth across the products. So as I listen to you, I mean, it's really that third phase where you realize the thesis, right? As you said, you acquire these companies for a reason. You think one plus one is going to equal three or four, right? So it's really yes. that third phase where you're going to unlock, ideally, this increment of value because they're part of you know the larger Cisco portfolio. There is that. Does that track? That's absolutely. A specific example could be that's the time when we're starting to add them to enterprise agreements, to software buying programs yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that incorporate you know all of our product catalog within security. And, and then you know that's a trigger for Boss as an example. Like, oh, you know, what is that multi-product adoption journey look like? Because yep. up to that point, that product's been adopted as, you know, as a single solution set. And, and so then the complexity all of a sudden starts to come in right away as we go, okay, it's not one product, it's two or three or four. Boss, here you go. <laughs> let's, right. uh, let's get on the ride. Yeah, and so that's the perfect segue into this fourth phase. So I'm going to bring you, Vaz, into the conversation here. So describe that fourth phase now, right? Again, you really want to unlock the, the value proposition here for the customer in the broader sense. So what's that fourth phase all about? So this fourth phase is actually new for Cisco. It's a new muscle memory, I think, over the last year, year and a half, maybe two years that we've started to build. And that's really this concept of customer experience as a differentiator, right? Like Cisco has been transforming from hardware centric to software centric. It's a very slow and kind of measured step-by-step -step journey mm -hmm. to get there. 
And what is really great about the security space is they're ahead of the game, right? Like SaaS is the difference maker in the security space. And so when we talk about functional alignment, what it means is if your CX organization has their own thesis of here's what customers want and need to not feel like Cisco is 12 companies, we can't go and build that as a CX function without understanding where product is going, right? And and what is needed to support each of those products. So if we're starting to say, hey, Morgan, great, you acquired a company, pass over the, the CX team, most likely you'll start to see a steady strip of people attrition, of product attrition, of lack of subject matter expertise on how we actually get the product benefit across rest of Cisco, right? And that uplift. So once we've kind of learned, hey, here is how sales is gonna take on this new part of the business, here is a natural couple of groupings of how this adds lift to our product portfolio. Our team has kind of a set of capabilities where we say, hey, great, customers, when they now ask about product A, are going to now start being positioned product B and C, which are new to Cisco. We want to make sure that when the handoff happens from sales to post-sales, we don't have a set of people who either have no idea that this new product was sold or is part of our portfolio and that they're not actually thinking about, well, I've got my adoption journey and and you've got your adoption journey and we'll both exist separate, but we don't need to talk to each other. It's how we can start to bring that organizational alignment so that the rest of the customer success teams who talk to people every day at Big Cisco, as we affectionately call it, know what's happening with these companies. Because in some cases, you've got you know, $100 million organizations that work with us every day across every single line of business. And so when you've got a new SaaS product that's latest, greatest, really exciting capabilities, it takes some time for everybody in Cisco to realize, hey, how do I bring this into all of the other conversations we might be having with with this customer? So let me just baseline the audience here because, Morgan, I think you're role, which is responsibility for multiple products. You know, you acquire a product, you got to bring it in and think about how it fits into your product portfolio. I think the world is pretty familiar with that role in a sense at a company that has lots of products in play. But Foz, let's talk about your role a little bit more in terms of customer success across potentially multiple customer success organizations or motions. So how does your role fit there with the CS motions that are going on when you acquire these companies? Are there distinct CS organizations that are in play that you're helping to coordinate across? Just put a little bit of, you know, more meat on the bone there for folks. Yeah, no, it's it's exactly that. So probably four years ago, Cisco invested as an organization in creating a customer success function at the Cisco level. And when you think about Cisco, that means start with networking because that's our core business that didn't really have that model in place. Now, over time, the organization has built this framework for saying, hey, what does customer success look like when you have a large multi-product organization? Now, my job in the last year and a half, two years, has been working with Morgan and team to say, look, there are parts of the security business that are non-SaaS-led, right? We're going through that transformation to SaaS. And we didn't have customer success thought about as day one. We really had services thought about as day one because it was implementation and adoption. Traditional, right? Yeah, got it. Exactly. And as we now bring in, you know, the duos, the umbrellas, these large ARR, high growth industry leading products into our company, these teams have really advanced success practices, right? If you if you look at what's out there in the industry, they've got monetization in play, they've got, you know, telemetry and deep insights about how customers are using their products. They've got really well-trained CSM and technical practices to make sure that we have people 
can get involved before the deal closes. Success is actually leading upsell conversations sometimes. They're doing a lot of the work on the renewal. And so maintaining that customer trust is really my first job so that as people say, hey, Duo, now part of Cisco, Umbrella, now part of Cisco, Kenna, now part of Cisco, they don't feel the worry of, is my day-to-day experience with this product and with post-sales going to change, right? So that's kind of my first job is, how do I make sure that all of our people who support these products and are used to a way of doing business feel no change? Because how they're talking to their customers and their mission is still the same. And then we kind of slowly start to add the value, right? To say, hey, did you know that you know, you're supporting Duo, but your customer also has firewall, they've got email, they've got our endpoint business, they might have networking. How can we help that CS team who's used to focusing on one product build their network with the customer and also be that subject matter expert to say, hey, I am still supporting you on this product, but I also work for Cisco now. And I know and I have awareness of these other things that are going on. And if you need something, Mr. Customer, I want to make it feel like you're not talking to 10 different companies, right? I want to be able to really seamlessly pull in those those other folks into the team. So it's, it's a pretty fun job, I'd say. Well, so fun's one word for it. <laughs> I would say that in, in, other, in other ways, it, you know, it could clearly be a, a stressful job. It is a sometimes I would have to imagine a herding cats type of job because as you articulated, you, you, you bring a company in, they say, hey, look, we've got a great CS motion. That's why you acquired us because we have this great growing company. And now in some ways you may be asking us to tweak that, to alter that, to, to, to rethink some pieces of it. So in what you describe is incredibly logical, right? You do want to have this consistent experience for your Cisco customers, but clearly that is a, a complex and hard journey to navigate. But one thing that impressed me, because I, you know, I was watching the presentation that you folks did at Envision in Vegas a couple months ago, and you you identified some of these key building blocks, right? For delivering a consistent customer experience across multiple products. So Vaz, can you describe the first three building blocks that, you, that you've identified there? Yeah. So, you know, one of the, the principles Morgan talked about is do no harm. And when we think about what are the areas that help us know whether we're keeping that mandate and identifying proactive opportunities and not trying to like, one of the things we, we hear a lot that gets m- sometimes misunderstood is consistent means the same. That's not the case, right? Consistent means figuring out what should be common and then what has to be customized based on the product. And it all starts with what is the end goal? So that first building block is common metrics. Every SaaS product, every company has some view of here's how I define that my customer is getting value from this. Um, Here's how I know that I'm adding that incremental value to the business. And by and large, those things are similar, right? It's, hey, I have some measure of recurring revenue. I have some measure of product health. Um, And so how do we start to get into the details of, are those metrics sounding the same, but in actuality, they're qualitative or they're data science, right? Like, how do we get into the methodology so we have common metrics? The second, and, and, can I, and I'm sorry to interrupt you there because I, I think this common metrics is, is so key. But did you find as you bring these different companies in that even for some foundational metrics, and we see this at TSIA, you think everybody has the same understanding and definition, but they don't. So, they so, don't. When, yeah. so it's part of your job to not only agree on, hey, A, this is the common metric, but B, this is how we're going to calculate it. 
Well, it's, it's not only with the companies we acquire, Thomas, it's educating Cisco. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. When you think about our, our history, and we've come a long way, but, but over the course of this journey, we've spent a lot of time internally evangelizing uh, the kind of foundational SaaS right. metrics. What the metrics are, and this is how we're going to calculate them. Yeah, yeah. And the calculations, absolutely. And then certainly one of the common objections, it was funny that I used to get when we were establishing these metrics was, well, what's the industry standard? Mm -hmm. And then I would go out and I would show 10 different 10, you know, 10Ks and 10Qs and I'd show a Bessemer report. I go, look, there is no standard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know. Yeah, it. so so like here are the labels of these metrics we can right. choose to measure, and then the calculations let's just make sure that they're as uh, transparent as possible for making sure we're measuring the outcomes where we want to achieve yep. in the context of our business, right? So, uh, but certainly that's an ongoing effort even today with mm-hmm. some of our acquisitions. Like you'll you'll kind of go into a team and and how they're measuring even ARR. Yeah. But certainly when it comes to renewal rates and retention rates and net versus gross and those things, you'll find you've got to constantly communicate what those are and, and how we're calculating Absolutely. them yeah. uh, in, in order for us to to be consistent across the business. Yeah. So I, I apologize for interrupting you there, Vaz, but I, I think that that was a really important point, right? So you're establishing, these are going to be the common metrics. Also, very importantly, this is how we calculate them. So that's one of your building blocks. I'm sorry, continue. Yeah, the other building blocks. What Morgan's saying and what you're calling out feeds into the second one, right? If you want to have common metrics, no one can put their hand up and say, well, my data is over here, right? Because that just, it stops you from having that transparency and it stops you from even being able, like, forget our internal metrics. It stops you from being able to have a meaningful conversation with your customer because they're going to ask you a question and your first answer is going to be, I don't know. And when a customer knows more about what they have with your business than you do, you can never really develop that trusted advisor you know, role. And then Cisco as a whole starts to struggle right, with what value we're providing. So right alongside common metrics is shared data visibility. And this is another one of those things where breaking this down from that 20,000 foot vision of we're going to move to one platform was absolutely not the approach that we needed to start with, right? It was how do we identify in the data, like what are the five most important things? Is it knowing who the customer is? Is it, you know, knowing their financial footprint? Is it telemetry? Is it who the contact is? And I'll tell you people at Cisco and different groups still have a different answer for what their probably most valuable, you know, data attribute is, but getting the buy-in to say, we need to get to a customer 360 where Oracle is the same in every single mm-hmm. platform that we have, or we at least know what one company's footprint is, is one of those just key foundational elements. Yeah. And I, I would add on to that real quick that in a company the size of Cisco, any type of large mega portfolio company, right? Yep. As you're solving for that customer data issue, what becomes very apparent is, um, like the higher up or the more centralized you go in the organization that's solving for that, the more removed from the personas those yes. that, that design becomes. Yep. And so you all of a sudden, the company has to be careful that they're not designing for like the purchasing manager persona and think that's going to achieve usage and success outcomes yep. within a specific product. 100%. Yep. Yeah, and, and again, that was an early uh, that was an early level of evangelizing we had to do across the organization. Of you're not just solving for that Fortune 500 customer that buys tens of million dollars of Cisco product and just wants to manage their subscriptions. It's like yeah. no, you're also having to 
solved for that you know customer that has one or two products uh, is in the commercial segment and that persona is very very different and making sure that you're solving for that need for what type of data we need as a company to make sure that our customers are being successful with the products that they're acquiring so this issue of the visibility right would you put on the table here because if you think about it, you're bringing all these products in and you know one sort of nirvana would be, gosh, we just have everybody running off the same platform. It's all the same exact data source, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're putting on the table is that's really not practical. It's not realistic. So let's... Or possible in a time horizon that's yeah. realistic. <laughs> yeah, it's not realistic. So so we're going to identify, A, what are critical data points to give us the most complete view of the customer who has multiple products? And then are you basically sucking the critical data out of the different products and you bring it into a repository that then everybody does have the visibility? So here's our common repository. And that's the one that is our source of truth across multiple products being fed by the different product platforms. Is that accurate? I'm making a joke of it, but we, we get beat up regularly on making sure that the telemetry that is required for that Kind of the lowest common denominator of data in order for a, uh, again, think of an internal persona now for that customer success executive or for that client exec to have the information they need for a customer that has multiple products across multiple Cisco architectures. What's that baseline of information that they need to be successful? And then we work it up from there. So we yeah. get pressured every quarter yeah. to make sure that uh, both our kind of our legacy products and our newer products are empowered with those types of telemetry capabilities that are then fed into what uh, what Boz and other teams need to, to do their So job. this is really important for folks keeping score at home, right? So if you want to build these common building blocks, when you have a complex portfolio, get common metrics, common way to calculate them, agree on how you're going to get visibility to those metrics across a lot of different platforms. And I think the third building block is around a digital platform. So can you describe that for the folks? Yeah, so this basically solves every, I would say, marketer and probably marketer's real problem of how do I make sure that if I'm selling a customer 10 products, they don't automatically get 10 different emails that we don't know about as a company. And there are some real examples of this, right? Where, again, if you look at platforms and and just that aspect, most advanced or even mid-level SaaS companies have some level of automation in place, right? Is hey, mm-hmm. order books, send a provisioning email. Yeah. Hey, customer isn't deployed, send them a reminder. So now imagine you also have your overall Cisco doing the same, same two or thing. three touchpoints from different yeah. platforms and with different customer identifiers. And we found that this is the fastest way, like I'll, I'll make a joke about this, but it's the fastest way for any one of us to get a seller to pay attention and say, who sent this email to my customer and why, right? Like yeah. that's the action that you get right away. And so yeah. this is one of those, I would say, has the potential to be death by thousand paper cuts if you don't yeah. have a point of view on it right away. And again, very similar to shared data visibility. The answer yeah. doesn't have to be, hey, all else platform stop and we pick one. But the answer does have to be, what are the right rules and triggers for which governance happens so that if we're going to send the customer multiple emails and it's the right thing to do, we need to do it in an orchestrated way. And then when you start getting more advanced, which is where we want to go, right, is digital doesn't just mean email, but it starts to mean in product, social, and starts to mean more advanced kind of touch points. We need to know that engine feeding into it is not getting oversaturated with information and spitting out too much. 
but is also very aware of what's happening in one product versus the other, especially as you start to have products that have complementary use cases, right? And and that's, I think, where not having the initial foundation makes it pretty painful to say, okay, we're going to stop emails or we have a lot of rework to do to get ourselves out of, you know, a platform decision. So if I play that back, the digital platform is really key to being the traffic cop, if you will, for all these customer digital customer touch points. So you want to make sure that that is coordinated. So that makes tons of sense. And then and then there's this fourth building block related to adoption. So Vaz, tell me about that one. What's that all about? This is where we start to say, hey, how do we get to consistent but not the same, right? And one of the big things that we find are when you have a scale motion and you're not able to cover, you know, every single person with a high touch approach, people have this concept of tech touch or scale touch. And it's, you know, sometimes time-based, sometimes telemetry-based. But our design principle here is based on the persona, you know, you're solving for at the customer site, the minute you stop talking to your admin persona, the person who's really in your product every day, someone else is talking to them. And they're starting to wonder, hey, everything is going well. And like, this was a real example. We had, a, we had someone give us feedback saying, hey, you reached out to me with this digital offer. Everything was going well with the product, but I just hadn't thought about it much. And so I actually was about to think about a competitor and this really helped. And so it was, it was huge validation. But adoption campaigns are how do we build that always on digital experience using the telemetry and using the PM and the kind of engineering value prop for their customer. If they say, hey, the journey is really A, B, C, and we find that not enough people are doing B, but they're going straight to C, how do we really reinforce what we believe are value props or actually take that back to our PM and engineering team to say, hey, your always on journey tends to fail most in this part of your product experience. Mm -hmm. So how can we diagnose and course correct, right? Is it the customer effort is too high and we need to do more? Or is it, hey, we need to rethink about the way we're driving adoption to that. But the basic is it has to be always on and it has to be really based on how the customer is using your product for it to be meaningful and to have the persona feel like I'm actually engaging with this email or with this content on a regular basis. So Morgan, let's click into that in terms of this handshake between product teams and CS around the adoption framework. Because one thing that, that we hear pretty consistently is that customer success organizations can get incredibly frustrated with product organizations that basically look, adoption is not in my queue here, right? I've got, I'm, I'm working on new features, I'm working on this, I'm working on this other thing. And so you're knocking on my door telling me, hey, either I need this telemetry or do you realize, you know, the adoption is going in a certain way. And, and so, it, so sometimes that is just not an effective handshake. So how do you really make sure that the product teams lean into that conversation with CS? Uh, yeah, so Thomas, when we talk about how, we make sure that that handshake is solid and that there's a feedback loop from product to customer success and back again. Mm -hmm. That step, I mean, that's a that's a heavy lift that like I work on a lot. And first off, I'll t kind of take a step back in that we talked about that, that acquisition model. There's a point in time when those customer success teams that are coming from those acquired companies are breaking out of the coop. They're going to a bigger part of the family. They're going to Voss. And that's the first step in trust building that has to happen, which is, oh, by the way, just because it looks different in the org chart 
doesn't mean that our process and our engagement model between customer success, PM, and engineering needs to be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's a that's a trust and relationship issue that takes uh, time to develop. And something that Voss and I, again, before we made these big moves in the security organization and moving kind of large scale customer success teams over to Voss, mm-hmm. that was the first thing we got right is making sure that that, that trust and understanding is there. And then. From, from there, how do we actually turn that trust, kind of that qualitative trust and relationship in, into something that can be actually be a process and replicated regardless of who's in our roles over time? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the next step. And concretely, what I've done is I've, I've, I still have all of our SaaS support right now. So when you think about if there's a problem, uh, I have a team that focuses on our SaaS properties that remedies that problem. So I already have a strong linkage mm-hmm. between boss's organization, my team, and, and that's that person that leads that support organization. Actually, I've chartered him with what we'll call customer first. And his primary mission right now is to make sure that we've got a closed loop process from, uh, from all the various inputs that we get, synthesize that into actionable activities for product and engineering to uh, to improve the product experience. And, and obviously, Voss is a huge stakeholder there. So when we think about the product development lifecycle, first off, again, back to the various levels of maturity of, of these teams that we have. We have some teams that actually have uh, pods that include uh, adoption teams and design teams at the beginning of the design process, the development process. Mm-hmm. We have other teams that are still learning how to do that, still have to acknowledge and recognize the benefit you have of opening up early, you know, to these adoption teams that, yep. are, that can provide insights into the design and development of the product. And actually, that's going pretty well. I mean, it's fairly early days, i.e. it's the first several quarters of us making that happen. Mm-hmm. So we'll see the results of that in in the next calendar year and, and beyond. But uh, there's certainly a willingness at this point because of all the communication we've done into the product teams and engineering to reinforce the importance of adoption as something we have to invest in. The other thing I do is I give it executive attention. So every week we uh, we release comments from from NPS follow-up interviews to the specific teams that were involved. You know, if there's if there's follow-up interviews that have to happen, we include the quotes. It goes to the whole management team. Mm-hmm. So it creates a, a spirit of like, oh, well, the senior leadership cares. B, you know, the GM is going to be calling me about what you're doing about this particular issue. And C, again, it, it reinforces the process by which, okay, we need to incorporate these closed loop feedback mechanisms into the story points that we have to invest in for the purposes of better outcomes. And so that's how that's how we've been doing it. I'm actually more I'm pretty excited about it because it's something we've been wanting to do for a while and, and we're we're kind of getting on plane with how that's working and I'm excited to see the again it'll be a lot the outcomes in the quarters of head in when it comes to customer experience and what have you. Sorry, Thomas, just one thing to add there. I think from from our perspective, right, as the like requester often from customer success to say, hey, when am I gonna get XYZ or what's happening in the roadmap or when are you gonna fix this? I will say that that was the first question all of the teams asked me as they moved organizationally, right, into yeah. outside of being in product to a different yeah. team to say, hey, how can I know that my partnership with PM will stay strong? And I think just coming back to common metrics, one of the metrics to Morgan's point that like exec attention helps with is what's the status of your adoption for your product? 
and making sure that PM has a stake in defining that from an adoption health perspective and then looking at it side by side with NPS, right? So you've got this quantitative view of, hey, you're telling me feature X is amazing, but I'm telling you nobody has adopted it and here is why. And number two, customers are telling you, hey, here's like the pain point or what they really love about the experience. As a PM, how do you scale that and do more of it? So I think this is an area we've definitely seen just a cultural shift in, right, for how important it is to have that pulse check and a level of detail beyond just high level. I talked to five customers and they said this, or I think I heard this from some sellers or some partners. So it's, it's been a big change. Yeah. So you, you folks put a lot on the table here. And, and again, I just want to frame it in for the listeners. So number one, again, you bring these companies in where CS and product folks may literally be just be part of the same organization. They're side by side. And all of a sudden you separate that out. And CS people can be very nervous about that and saying, whoa, 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 I'm, I'm now over in this other organization. How do I keep a tight loop? And what you're saying is, well, number one is we have management attention on adoption, right? And number two, culturally, we're trying to really help everybody understand that the sooner you get the adoption voices into the conversation with product earlier in that life cycle, the better good things happen. So you're reinforcing that, right, with the teams. And then I'm curious, Morgan, from your perspective on the product side, do you see that when, you know, because you do have a lot of different products in play, do, do product teams that weren't as receptive, let's say, to the to the CS input, when they watch their peers who are maybe, you know, running the model a little bit differently and leaning into CS earlier, do they learn from that? And they go, oh, okay, that seems to be helpful. So does, it, does that culture start to... You know, do dominoes tip because, you know, product teams see it's actually a better way to do? I and mean, what, what, what do you observe there? It does. It, it, like the, the most effective forcing function is when yeah, a senior product leader starts asking questions about, well, how are you measuring usage and adoption? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what, what type of information or how are you instrumenting the product? Yeah. When those questions come up in, in the commit processes, uh, when they come up, when when we're going deep on customer health metrics or MPS in a quarterly review, and those questions can't be answered adequately, mm-hmm. uh, you know that, that that's a pretty effective forcing function yeah, yeah, to, to get their attention. Oh, yeah, yeah, the org cares about it, and we we have to do more. Um, they need help on how to invest there, though. That, that that's mm-hmm. like, you know, obviously, no one's saying I, I don't want to have perfect information on my customers' usage right, and right, adoption right. of our products. It all comes down to, well, but what about these features? Mm-hmm. But what about these next things that the these customers trade-off. are saying yeah. they really need? Yeah, yeah. And it's getting through that trade-off and like recognizing that you can even, you, know, you can continue to grow your business with more satisfied customers and higher renewal rates, mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, your customer, which customers are at risk and which ones are healthy yeah. uh, at the expense of that next feature which then builds a bigger flywheel for you. So that new AR, that, you know, that IARR that you need uh, it, for the growth target you're hitting, it shrinks. Like you need less new customers. Now you don't want that, but I mean, it, 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 they can get to see the math. Like, well, yep. the more I renew, the yep. better off I'm going to be. And, and so I, I do think there's a virtuous circle as product leaders look to their left and right and see a team that is more, further along in this continuum, in this maturity process or framework mm-hmm. and say, so, yeah, we need to be like that. So, you know, as I listen to you, 
you ask the tough questions of the product folks, and if they don't have the answers around how they're going to measure adoption, that's that's one way to you know to get attention on it. You talk about the fact that they start to realize we're better at adoption here. It's going to help things like our renewal rates, like growing ARR, which product managers obviously should care about, right? I have heard other companies put some specific compensation parameters on the table for product around adoption, right? And saying, hey, we need to start to really focus on this. And it's one of the ways that we're going to actually, you know, measure your your success. Have you seen anything in that arena from the product side to get their attention? Or is it is it the things that you're already doing? We do not have hard, uh, hard metrics or MBOs related to adoption for product managers today. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we, we certainly have and, and we don't use our OKRs as a compensation tool. However, you know, we, we do use OKRs. Adoption metrics are oftentimes are part of the key results that we're looking to hit in different product areas. Uh, and so when you look over the course of the year or the, or the six months or what have you and the performance of a team or a given product person, and, and you know, they're, they're not doing those things that, that, they, uh, that they said, either they were going to do or they're just they're not prioritizing those activities you know that goes into the whole the whole assessment yep. of the individual performance yep. factor and how we how we compensate but, but I, I would agree with you but like to me like adoption like like i'm I, I, frankly i would be in favor of a more structured uh comp environment for some of these key these key things we need to get the org to shift to uh, we're just we're not there yet on the comp side. Thomas, I'm smiling because I think I asked Morgan the same question while we were in Vegas saying, hey, have we considered this? Because <laughs> we always yeah. get asked, right? Like, how are you yeah. comping the customer success teams on those same metrics, right? A, yeah. Like ARR, growth, retention, renewal, and, and that's its own debate. Same with sales compensation. But I, I'm, I'm smiling because I do think that's, for, for companies that are maybe a little bit less complex, I think it's absolutely the right avenue to go down mm-hmm. just for from my perspective and yeah. comp- people, people met what someone says to me um, often, people respect what you inspect. And so that's, that's the okay. fast way well, to get that. I mean, we, have, we have an old thing at TSI. It's like, you, you understand the company culture, take a look at the comp plans, right? I mean, you can see what people <laughs> are, are compensating on. And I yeah. do b- believe, and you guys are articulating a lot of great tactics again, to get the CS and P- PM handshake, you know, tighter, but Morgan, I don't, I don't want you to take umbrage with this, but I think that the product teams, you know, a lot of companies, especially a company like Cisco, where you've been doing products for a long time, this is a journey they have to go on. This is not their heritage, yeah. right? This is not the DNA of these product folks that be thinking about adoption, right? And, and be asking the questions that you're talking about. So it is a massive cultural shift, for, for product teams. And so I think that's why I think something like compensation is, is one of the things that, you know, one of the levers people may start to pull to, you know, to help product teams, you know, lean, lean into this, yeah. but you know, you, you go, go ahead, Morgan, you're going to comment on that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think even before that, or in conjunction with it is a more robust training plan. Like, you know, we owe it to the product managers, right? If we want them to change, you know, and learn yeah, this new language, learn these new models, then give them the toolkits and the opportunity to learn what what's expected and how to do it. You know, or and and the frameworks and you know, TSIA has great frameworks, right? That that, that, that can help with that. Yeah, I I, to- I I totally agree with that. I mean, it, I mean, they're just not going to wake up one morning and say, "Hey, I know how to do yeah. do things differently." So, so you you two have put awesome building blocks on the table, but. We're not done yet. There's another building block around content, right? I think is that is that do I have the the name yeah. right there? So, so Vaz, explain explain what that one is. 
So this one was an interesting one. And I'll, I'll be really honest and say this is the area we're continually recalibrating. Because if you think about your experience talking to anybody, right, if you call a B2C company, you get their support line. If you're a customer and you're talking to your success rep, there are some people who doing customer success is their DNA, right? And they're just so excellent. They know how to customize things. They get to the root of a problem really fast and they build really great collateral that their customers just want more of. That doesn't scale, unfortunately. And in today's market, right, those people become, you know, stretched thin being customer facing, being team leads, being best practice speakers. And so we took kind of two or three steps back and we actually did a bunch of customer research to say, hey, what are the the top five to 10 topics that customers tend to care about when they're going through their adoption journey. And it ranges from things like, hey, onboarding, day two operations, upgrade best practices, fine tuning, you know, advanced feature deep dives. We kind of broke this into about six to 10 based on the maturity of the product, building blocks or topics. Now, from those, you essentially have three flavors of content, right? One is your one-to-many, which are these conversations with experts where you're looking at product demos. It's more for probably your mid-sized companies, people who are willing to talk about different questions, but maybe not get into the deep technical backend of how their systems are functioning. Those get paired with what we call accelerators, which are one-on-one technical engagements that now can take one of those topics You've got a pre-made deck and a demo that any technical person can be trained on. And so they don't have to spend their time building the the content up front. They're spending the time with the customer more in a discovery phase to say, hey, look, you know, I, I can walk you through all of the things, but give me your customization requirements so that I can really just make the conversation and the demo more interactive. So instead of them needing to spend maybe two or three days up front and figuring out what is the content I need to pull together, They've got a starting point. They've got access to tools and to like environments that make that time to value faster when they're talking to the customer. And then it allows you to also say, hey, when we look at self-serve content, how can we be really modular and prescriptive about the different levels of that self-serve content we're putting out there? Again, with the whole avenue and the mindset of, I want to create the machine infrastructure. I don't want everything to look and feel the same, but I want the building blocks to be consistent So that when we then go back to our product managers and to our marketing folks, we're not asking them to build something net new every single time. We're really focusing on core message, core value statement, core assets. And you can add that customer success value messaging on top of it at a much faster rate, which allows us to build faster products and also ship that awareness into the market much faster. So as I hear that, I mean, it's really a common content framework, content that accelerates adoption and customer success and being consistent across all these different products and saying, this is how we're going to define these categories. You should be building content, you know, into these categories. Yeah, that's, I think that's fantastic. And obviously for the, for a customer of Cisco, again, if you're dealing with multiple products, you're starting to see a consistent view there around the types of content that you can expect to be successful. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. Well, there's one last building block I want to make sure that we get to here. It related to system renewal process and partner engagement. And this one, Morgan, I have to ask you because TSIA, we consistently hear that product teams do not, and I mean do not, design products with with partners in mind. So what is the role of product teams in enabling partners to support specifically your SaaS offerings? Yeah, that's a that's a good call out. And certainly we're probably in that bucket that you just uh, talked about, generally speaking, you know, because how do we how do we enable an environment 
for partners both to grow their business and their customer success practices in a way that facilitates again their success and and ours not just to scale boss i mean right this like partners can be a wonderful scaling mechanism and i think the industry in general is still finding its path on this SaaS model vis-a-vis partners yeah, and, absolutely. and you know, not treating yeah. it as just another thing that the partner community is is selling. I can tell you what we're doing is making sure that in our newer product lines, we're thinking about managed services. We're thinking about tenancy more effectively. We're thinking about how we expose APIs more effectively for the purposes of provide uh, value-added service creation. Those types of things, and, and we do a lot of that today. So the, the opportunities there, I think, to differentiate ourselves even further in the marketplace, you know, we, we need more purpose-built, channel-oriented tooling, uh, and I'll say APIs mm-hmm. as a starting point, but then yep. the instrumentation and what have you uh, along with it. I, I, I would say it's a two-way street in the sense that we're not going to create multiple instances of truth on on customer data, right? It doesn't work that way. So does that mean all the data resides with us? And then are customers or partners willing to share that data in the early phases of the process so we don't get like Joe at drycleaner.com as the point of contact for this company? (laughs) That's something else. Um, There there needs to be, again, a back to trust and transparency so that if we want to drive customer outcomes in the post-sales journey effectively, data fidelity, data accuracy is super important with all parties involved, or else you just kind of, you lose the train pretty quick if you don't have that info. But uh, developing for partners, look, we're a partner-driven company. You know, 90 plus percent of our business is driven by partners. So we're completely bought into the partner model. We're doing pretty good on making sure our products are partner-centric and we can do more and we want to do more. And particularly in the managed service environment for partners to create that service creation in in that SaaS world. Well, and maybe just one other thing to add. You know, we talk about products aren't always built with partners in mind. Like what we're finding in the customer success side is partners have the same challenges about scaling, right? When they're supporting a certain company, their investment in CSMs or in services or whatever, you know, might be their route to market is much higher than a direct kind of businesses. So as much as we have part of the benefit of all of our common frameworks and practices is how much of that you can then potentially repackage and kind of give as an option to a partner to say, hey, we'll co-brand or create some of that value shared in in the collateral that we have. Because the intent is not, hey, I'm building a product that's focused on a partner and then we're sending you off to go do adoption and renewal and, and everything else on your own. But rather, we have a lot of tools. How can we make this mutually beneficial so that customers at the end of the day experience best no matter who they're talking to? Yeah, I mean, this is a massive pivot in the industry for all the legacy technology providers, you know, like a Cisco, like, you know, Microsoft that have been uh, very channel intensive historically. Now you have more as a service offers. And what is the role of partners in that? And this is, a, you know, a big pivot that everyone's working through. And I'm, I'm just curious, Morgan, since you guys have done so many acquisitions, have you stumbled upon a born the cloud SaaS company that actually had cracked the code on the role of partners within that? Or do you find that they were all pretty heads down, direct model? What's been your experience? Uh, it's more the later. I mean, yeah. the more recent companies we've acquired certainly have 
partners. Yeah. Uh, but in the context of I would call like a conventional SaaS model where growth has really primarily been sales led from from the acquired company. Yeah, and those partners may be resellers, but that but that's sort of a limited role, you know, in the sense of hey, yeah, help yeah. me resell. But yeah. The other thing we do in Cisco, uh, and it requires a lot of resource, so you know it's not available to all companies. But like, how do you help partners build those practices? Right. Right. How do you help them both with subject matter expertise right. and, and even with soft funding and what have you, just to support those motions? And uh, and we do that. And so that's a plus for us as we as we invest in that partner. Yeah, and again, it's a very different model because historically, you think about partner enablement in the in the older models, it was really about technical enablement more than anything, right? Make sure they could yeah. technically implement your product and technically support it. And it was very clear how they would make their money, i.e. they would resell your product, but then they would implement it, they could support it. Now these new models, hey, we really need you to be good at adoption and customer success. Well, what's that? Yeah. You know, So yeah, it's it's a different world. And, and like the other thing is you have to be mindful of not like giving them the junk, like, like your long tail renewals, right? Yep. <laughs> Process like it, it costs just as much for a partner as it is for us to process, you know, a hundred dollar renewal. If, if the you know if the average renewal is a thousand bucks, like why? How am I going to spend time to effectively process this hundred dollar renewal? Well, first, yep. how do we make sure that we have auto renew capabilities? How do we automate that as much as possible? Yep. But to think like the default shouldn't be, oh well, the partners are just going to get the long tail renewals because they're going to they'll throw up on it just like oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, it's like partners gotta, don't want your scraps in a sense, your economic scraps. Right? It's just like, well, we can't make money at that. Well, you guys go figure out how to make money at that. It's yeah. not a very winning conversation. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. So well, I tell you what, I'm, I'm looking at the, at the clock here and, and this has been a great conversation going through these building blocks. Um, I, I think our audience is going to get a lot of value out of this. And, and again, I was really impressed by the presentation you folks did in Vegas uh, for any of the folks that attended the conference that's available. You can watch that. I, I encourage it because you guys have a great slide deck there. They put some visuals around this, but it, it's clear you're making a lot of progress on this CS project management handshake, which again, a lot of companies are struggling on. So, so thank you so much. And I like to end these episodes always with the question of the day. And so here it is. What best describes the interface between CS and product teams at your company? Handshake or headbutt? Cheers. Cheers.